Welcome, everybody. We are now live. I'm going to be speaking about how cities are using artificial intelligence to become smarter. But first, I want to give you a little bit of background about myself. I started studying smart cities, um, I think, over 15 years ago when I was in New York. I had been on Wall Street for many years and was fascinated by how machine learning was improving productivity. And I wanted to understand how one could do that at an urban scale. So at that time, people were not really calling it smart cities, but then it became very in vogue. And I decided to do my PhD in smart cities. And I went to the London School of Economics and I started studying specifically in Germany, in Berlin, how they were digitizing and transforming the transportation sector to become more personalized, more sustainable, and more customer-centric. And a large part of what I want to do today is think about how far we have come and what some of the really big trends are when we think about smart cities and artificial intelligence. So here's how I'm going to structure this conversation. I'm going to talk about four main topics. One of them is how cities can be resilient and sustainable. The second one is what is the citizen experience? The third one is how does one govern these cities? How can you have security and governance in the cities? And finally, are cities going to eventually become hybrid cities? Are they always going to remain these physical cities that we're so familiar with? And I'm going to take each one of these topics and speak for about 10 minutes on all of them, and then have five minutes open for Q&A. So let's start. The first thing that I want to talk about is how do you make cities resilient and sustainable? And the most important thing when you're planning a city is to have the information to put the right thing at the right place. And I'll give you an example of this. In Barcelona, there was a project that was about building super blocks. And these were car-free mini neighborhoods around which traffic would flow. The idea was really simple. The city, like most cities in the world, have a huge problem with air pollution. And what the city wanted to do was to reduce traffic because traffic contributes a huge and significant amount of air pollution in a city. So if they could reduce vehicles by, let's say, 20%, then they could imagine that it would actually become an amazing place for citizens to live. And the air quality would improve. So this was the plan. And by the way, if you've been in any city, you'll realize that there is a huge amount of um, stress that comes from being also in commuting. So people in the United States, people also in United Kingdom, European Union can spend up to 200 hours a year just commuting. And from my personal experience, I was in Bangkok day before yesterday, and I spent two hours in the traffic getting from one end of the city to not that far away. So it's a natural desire to make cities more sustainable. But here's what happened. They knew that within these blocks, and if you look at a map, they had this amazing Barcelona map, and they were going to create car-free zones. 
And this is not new. New York has done this. London has done this. Singapore has done this. But because they didn't have any data, they could not do the analysis that the impact on emissions in the wider area would be negligible because air pollution within the super blocks had become better, but pollution had grown in the adjacent seats because the traffic had shifted to other seats. This doesn't mean that the super blocks were bad, but it showed that the planning did not achieve its ultimate goal. And one of the people who had planned this said that if he had known that this scenario would have unfolded, then they might have tried another strategy. And that's where digital twins come in. What is a digital twin? Essentially, a digital twin is a replica of a city where you take all of the information you can have, such as the map of the city, all the traffic flows of the city, all of the density in terms of urban population in the city. You look at weather patterns, you look at seasonal patterns, such as how people were, are in festivals or other things like that. And then you start to make scenarios that if I changed one thing, what would happen to the whole rest of the city as well? And in Barcelona, as I said, they had a plan. It was a good plan, but it had all of these externalities that the air pollution got worse in nearby roads that they hadn't expected. So Barcelona then decided to build a digital twin. It's actually housed in one of the city's oldest chapels, which is quite beautiful, but it has a Mare Nostrum supercomputer and it's located within this chapel. And it has housed the supercomputer since 2005. And the purpose of this supercomputer is the following, not to have flawed policies that are implemented, but to have policies reveal themselves to be flawed by experimenting on scenarios, given all the data you have, you can imagine where would the traffic go? How would it flow? Would this increase the population? How high are the buildings nearby? You know, it seems like a lot of data, but this data fundamentally changes the way we would build a smart city. Now, digital twins in themselves are not new. They are essentially there to allow a government and the private sector that works with it to have virtual experimentation, to have test bedding, and to have informed decision-making. Now, Singapore, where I'm right now, has a $73 million data-rich live digital replica. And here's what it's built on. Singapore's digital twin is built on 14 core data sets. It includes 3 million images that are captured at the street level, 160,000 images taken from the air, along with billions of data points about the buildings, about the traffic, about the residents that are all plotted in 3D. And that is at a minimum 100 terabytes of raw data. When you have so much data, you can actually begin to predict. For example, if you built a road somewhere or a bridge somewhere, what is the impact it would have on the heat in the neighboring residence homes? What would happen to traffic flow? And this kind of scenario planning with digital twins allows you to do it before a single brick is laid. Digital twins are being built in Florida, in Helsinki. They're being built by developers like in Orlando, the digital twin was made with the help of game developer Unity. And it's a circular room with LED screens showing 180 degrees, mapping every inch of the region. Las Vegas, Los Angeles, New York, Phoenix, they're all building these digital twins. So that's the first trend I want to talk about, resiliency and sustainability, and the need to use artificial intelligence by gathering data 
and having a digital replica of the city. The next pillar is essentially citizen experience. Um, and, and so what I'd like to do now is go on to that um, and talk about what is citizen experience in a smart city. What we're finding is that um, the old way of thinking about a smart city is very much about the technology. But the new way of thinking about a smart city is really about the customer experience. And increasingly, this is because you have people who are used to um, Facebook and Amazon and others. And this is one of the things that is more than just about the technology. So let me give you an example. In Singapore, what we have now is that we are becoming a super aging society. This means that we are aging very, very fast. at one of the fastest rates in the entire world. And one in four people will be over the age of 65 by 2030. Now, a lot of old people, when you think about what you should do and how you should take care of them, the old way of thinking about it was that, oh, let's take their house and, you know, put sensors everywhere and put cameras everywhere and put artificial intelligence in it so that we know if they are falling, then we can immediately alert somebody. If they haven't taken their medication, we can immediately alert somebody by looking at this data, by looking at this computer and the computer vision can actually be able to analyze if somebody is fallen or not, if they've taken their medicine or not, if they're happy or not. Well, that is a very technology-centric approach. And sure, uh, that is one of the important things, but really you want to always step back and think in this case, what are some of the biggest problems the elderly face in the world? And here are the three top problems the elderly face apart from being unwell. Number one, yes, it is injuries. We have people fall down and injure themselves. Number two, it's loneliness. Old people die of loneliness in cities. And number three, it's accidents, car accidents. So once you have identified the citizen and their quality of life, and here one particular demographic, which is people above 65, then you go back and start designing how you will improve your city for them. In the case of Singapore, they started making smart homes. So Housing Development Board, which provides subsidized housing to the majority of Singaporeans, is experimenting with smart homes. And yes, in the smart home, the child will know if mom is at home, if mom needs help, if mom is active in the kitchen, if moms fall down, immediately the doctor is called. If mom is uh, has fever or is unwell, again, the carer is alerted. But what about the other two things? You see, the other two things mean that we also need to create a Singapore where the elderly don't feel lonely. And here, like any AI term or team, you need to have people interdisciplinary teams. And you need urban designers and anthropologists as well. And so they decided that they would put senior citizen homes near playgrounds and parks and preschools. Because traditionally, we have put senior citizen homes very far away. If you go to America or other places, there are these expensive nursing homes far out, away from the, uh, the, the crowds, the delightful crowds that exist, or old people live alone. So when you have nursing homes near preschools, you can see that the elderly are surrounded by joy, by laughter, and there is this intergenerational approach. Not only that, Singapore also is making intergenerational new cities from scratch where autonomous vehicles are used so that there are no accidents.
because we know that if autonomous vehicles go slowly and are on roads which are very linear with a lot of safe testing the artificial intelligence in them works it's only when they have unexpected situations and they're not tested thoroughly that there are accidents and so entirely new districts are being made in singapore that don't have cars so now you've solved all three problems two of them with artificial intelligence which is autonomous vehicles and smart homes and one of them by thinking about anthropology sociology and psychology and i think that's the essence that we need to think about which is how do smart cities create amazing experiences for citizens without only thinking about technology now that's for older people if i was to think about younger people i think one of the things that has been really phenomenal has been what india has done with creating the trifecta of systems number 1 they created the identity system so that everyone has an identity pakistan also did this with the nadra card they did with india they with aadhaar singapore has singpass secondly they created a payments infrastructure so the unified payments infrastructure of india is the digital infrastructure that the government made so that everyone can make payments easily and the third is that by collaborating and partnering or allowing the private sector to come in india allowed reliance to launch its own geo network by which it was giving and plans to give a 12 dollar mobile phone to over 300 million indians who have no education and there are already 725 indians who own mobile phones what happens when you have an identity which means you can be identified a payment system so you can receive and send money to be an active part of the economy and lastly you have access a mobile phone with smart data at a cheap price so you have access to digital education digital work digital health so the most fundamental thing a government can do is build identity and payments infrastructure and then allow the private sector to build on top of the telecom infrastructure and that has been especially important for the citizen experience of young people because young people really value the ability to access digital services and these are the kinds of things where you become a citizen experience and citizen centric infrastructure now with payments you can do so much you can provide them subsidies using artificial intelligence you can provide them education subsidies you can provide them food subsidies you can nudge behavior for healthy eating and all of this is incredibly important and in singapore we have a health application which is all around for um all citizens to actually become aware of their health to have all their blood tests to have all of their doctors visits in one place and then the ai can eventually nudge them when it's built to engage in healthier eating so i'll stop here the second pillar for me was the citizen experience and i welcome um any questions does anybody have any questions yes rizwana hi dr go ahead thank you so much for sharing such an amazing use cases on smart cities um as you mentioned that the importance of uh, smart uh, citizen citizen experience and uh, how india is focusing on its upi app so i would love to hear your opinion on whether our seniors can also benefit from this payment payment apps uh because you know uh, the seniors are not very tech savvy and they are not you know used to of uh, mobile phones uh so in smart cities you how you can say that uh how we can make the process easy for them rizwana i think that's a great question and actually a lot of us have not gi given seniors enough credit 
But actually, uh, the Reserve Bank of India has revealed that 50% of digital payment users are above the age of 45. And all of these young seniors, if you're 50 in Singapore, you're called a young senior, are actually adopting digital payments. And in many countries, such as Singapore, you also have digital ambassadors that help seniors and onboard them onto digital services. It's incredibly important if you're going to have uh, efficient services, such as even the Dubai Now app in Dubai, that you have the ability to cater to every single part of the population. And using artificial intelligence, you can personalize the services that you're giving to them for their e-government experience or their general operating life experience. Uh, just like Amazon recommends the best things for us to use. If you're senior, you might be told to go nudge and please get your heart checked. But if you're a young person, you may be told of a scholarship that's coming up that may be relevant or a course that's coming up that may be relevant to you. So it's a good question. And, and I really want to emphasize that it's not only for senior citizens. Any other questions? Please, Islam, go ahead. Uh... Hi, good morning. Hello. I don't know if it is morning. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for the interesting, uh, really, contribution. I mean, in addition to, let's say, senior citizens, have you also thought about uh, other vulnerabilities or other vulnerable mm -hmm. communities in the society, like, um, I don't know, people with uh, disabilities, for instance, death or um, vision disability, how can we also maybe include uh, these groups uh, further? You know, this is such a good point, especially now, finally, that we have more inclusivity and diversity as a fundamental part of ESG reporting for all, um, all companies more and more. And in some countries, uh, it, it's cities are still not giving it enough attention, first of all. But what we do see is, for example, in Singapore, that uh, for wheelchair access, they are retrofitting a lot of the buildings. And they're also retrofitting a lot of the traffic lights so that um, if you're a senior citizen or differently abled in any way, you can press a particular button or eventually I'm sure the artificial intelligence may be able to recognize uh, you. And then uh, for example, you know the walk sign that one has, one it takes a lot longer and gives you more time to cross the street. In some places in Singapore, we have what are known as gray sidewalks because the elderly or poor differently abled can fall down if they're weak uh, or if they may be blind. And so you, you have a wider sidewalk so that somebody doesn't bump into them when they're going for a jog or something like that. But it's not systematic enough in the whole world. And I think it's a really important point and um, we should address it a lot more. I certainly don't see enough emphasis on this. Thank you for raising it. Okay, all right, so let's go to the next pillar. And the next pillar that I have is governance. So there are two parts to governance. One of them is that there are cameras everywhere. There is sensors everywhere. They are looking at security. For example, I was there at nine, during 9-11 when the terrible uh, tragedy happened in New York and so many people died. Some of my friends actually witnessed it. They were on Wall Street. And after that, New York, London, they started putting a lot of cameras everywhere. And New York did a lot of work with Microsoft. And the whole point of that was that if there's a bag that's left, it can recognize if it's just left there for a long time. If there's a suspicious person, you can recognize that person. But there is another side to all this as well, which is that the government and private actors who are helping the government to monitor and govern the space, we have to make sure that the data is protected and that is used well. And this is something really new and interesting that's happening, which is that citizens and countries are now saying 
that this artificial intelligence that you use, this data that you use, my data, your data, you cannot take it out of the country. So to give you an example, we know that for security and governance, and certainly as a mom, it matters to me a lot. I'm sure it matters to all of you also. That is fundamental to better services. But it's also important that the government protect our data. In Canada, Google, uh, or Alphabet rather, the, the parent company of Google, they had a project in Toronto by Sidewalk Labs. It was supposed to be a smart city section of Toronto. And it had all these smart lights where it would be much better at energy consumption. But all the data from the lights and the cameras was going back to servers in the United States because that's where their cloud servers were, right? That's where they hosted their data. But a number of Canadians rose up and said, this is not acceptable to us. We don't want to have a situation in which our data leaves the country and goes to some other country. And more and more governments are saying the same thing. They are stopping private sector companies from taking their data out. And this is known as data localization. In the same way now, we have artificial intelligence as well. And the European Union has the AI Act. And whether it's the government or the private sector, it's saying, yes, you can use artificial intelligence to help citizens. You can personalize services to them. You can make their lives better. You can make their homes smarter, their streets less polluted. But you cannot harm them or manipulate them in any way. You cannot not protect your AI models. So AI models can be attacked. I don't know if you know this, but AI models can also be attacked. It's called data poisoning. When AI models are attacked, you can poison their data, and so the AI goes whack. And so what you really want to do is you want to protect people from artificial intelligence used by governments and used by companies. And the European Union is excellent in really thinking about all of the frameworks under which risk management is done. And they say, if you, we audit you and we will audit you, if we audit you and we find that you have not had good governance of your AI, then we will fine you up to 6% of your annual revenue. And we may also do more than that. Now, that's one thing, right? The government is protecting the AI, the data that's being used. It's so important because you don't want the government can use it for good, but there's always a dark side to how AI is used also. Just think about it. You know, in all these elections, fake news, deep fakes, you don't know what's right, what's not right in politics, in anything else. And the government is working to stop these things from happening. Now, the other thing that's very important is that more and more governments now want to use robots and AI, and that's they're in the streets. So in Singapore, we, during the pandemic, had a robot dog from Boston Dynamics, and we don't have a lot of people. We're only 5 million people in Singapore. And the robot dog would roam in the parks. And we were all told about the robot dog in newspapers. The government told us what it was being used for, and we knew exactly what it was there for. Now, the same dog was used in the United States in New York by the police of New York City. It was really there so that if there is any threatening house or any other place, they send the dog in first and it checks if there's a bomb somewhere in that apartment or the house. That's all it does. But because they didn't communicate it properly to their citizens, there was a huge uproar. 
And what happened as a result was that they had to shut that system down. So I come back to the same thing. Governance without transparency and communication is not possible. If governments are going to use artificial intelligence, which they are, for example, if they are going to use robots that will be able to detect guns, that will be able to detect bombs using artificial intelligence, they need to explain this to the public. In New York, the citizens thought that the robot itself would have a gun and would randomly start killing citizens. So there was a huge miscommunication. And that's very, very important when you think about smart cities. The importance of actually governing the AI and communicating the AI, because there's zero doubt that to have an efficient city, for the reasons I mentioned, you need a digital twin that's full of data and AI, you need great citizen experiences full of data and AI, then you better make sure that you're protecting your data, you're protecting your AI, and you're communicating it properly with your public. So I see I have a question. Ruchi, please, uh, please go ahead. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, uh, hi, Aisha. I'm so happy to be a part of this uh, meeting. And I'm also an AI trainer. And as of now, I get a lot of, uh, though, sorry, my question is a little out of context as of now. Uh, I get a lot of queries about how to be used uh, chat GPT, uh, you know, in their daily work style. I'm also a trainer, so I'm doing uh, chat GPT training for the common people here in Singapore. Uh, so what's your question, sorry? So uh, how do you think, you know, like, uh, like uh, what are the things as a trainer you think we should prepare ourselves for, uh, you know, like the queries of general public for training uh, them and to, you know, uh, yeah, familiarizing them with the AI techniques. Oh, okay, okay. So, well, it is kind of, I suppose, related to smart cities because we need to train people in artificial intelligence. Yeah. Um, there's some really great courses, you know, like uh, from Andrew Ng on Coursera, deeplearning.ai. He has a ton of uh, generative AI, introduction to generative AI courses. And then you can check out some generative AI courses on, um, on uh, MIT executive research. And then I myself am putting a course together on basics of generative AI, which will be a digital course. Um, so I'm sure you'll find a lot more things like this. Uh, Shrijal, please go ahead. Hello. Yeah, thanks, Aisha. Uh, great to be part of this session. Very insightful. Uh, the question, I've got two questions. So my first question is around uh, the sustainability factor from smart cities. I know uh, when we, we are trying to implement smart cities, we're also considering uh, there's a lot of emphasis on sustainability. But uh, on the contrary, because... Um, a smart city is very much dependent upon the technology, uh, um, dependent upon sensors, etc. So there is a huge amount of e-waste getting generated out of smart cities. So how do we, how do we really balance out the sustainability factor? So that's my first question, and yeah. the second one is more uh, coming from an experience because I've been part of um, a smart city platform in Qatar. Um, what are the potential data collaboration opportunities that you see within smart cities? Because I understand every segment would try to hold on to their data because the data is the new oil, right? Everybody thinks it's the new, it's, it's actually gold for everybody. So how much of traction are you seeing in terms of data collaboration across all the smart cities um, across globe? Yeah. Let me start. I think they're both excellent questions. Um, I think let's start with the, uh, exchange of information between agencies. So there are two ways that uh, people are collaborating. One is inter-agency exchange of data. And the second is uh, private public exchange of data. So when you have inter-agency exchange of data, what we're seeing is the emergence of a GovTech office. We're seeing it in the Middle East. We're also seeing it, of course, here in Singapore. That has become extremely important. Inter-agencies usually 
uh, like any agencies in the world or any companies, there are a lot of politics involved. People don't want to really give up their data. So the best thing that a government can do is to have a central hub, which can create if one could say like a federated data lake, like a data platform for the entire government and with APIs, they can access them. And actually in Singapore, we're seeing a lot more of that. We know in Dubai also, I mean, you're in the region, you know, Dubai now has over 170 services. And so that is another area where I think we have seen that there's a lot of exchange of information. Um, I think that we'll begin to see more and more of that as city agencies are digitizing. If even if you look at Saudi Arabia, you're seeing that digital digitization of agencies is happening at high speed in the region. So I think that uh, right now it's uh, it's not there, but it will happen more and more and more. And if I look at sustainability, I think sustainability is really, really an interesting area. First of all, if you think just about what Spain is doing, right, uh, in smart waste management. So all of these cities are doing different things, whether it's smart water management, smart waste management. But in the case of Madrid, for example, just as an example off the top of my head, you have 11,100 sensors. Um, and what they do is they have, a, they have a comprehensive smart waste management solution. And what this does is uh, that it allows us to gather with smart bins and others data at the right time so that you can actually um, have less wastage in the city. Another thing that I've seen is that um, for sustainability, when you have data centers, you know, we talk about sustainability and we talk about using artificial intelligence. Um, it's very, very difficult for us to imagine that data centers themselves that are supposed to help us actually create a lot of um, greenhouse gas emissions. And so in places like Finland, in places like Ireland, they have taken huge data centers and the heat waste that they have, and they're using it to warm houses. So in Ireland, for example, Meta, has its data farms, data servering farms, and they are you know, going to be heating up to 6,000 homes. So there are many, many ways to not only to use it for sustainability, but also to use it to actually um, reduce the impact of the AI you're using itself also. And I think that's something that some people miss out on. Thank you, Shriram, uh, yeah. please go ahead. Yes, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Yeah, see, I live in New York City, and one of the things um, that we deal with, or you know, the city deals with, is the traffic. Again, this uh, is at the extreme level, and the approach uh, currently has been, you know, putting tolls, getting in, and uh, even though there is a toll of more than twenty dollars to get into Manhattan, you know, you, you I mean, there, there is. Uh, you know, a mile long queue to get it. And, you know, the, the approach has always been, uh, now it has been, you know, more they're doing congestion tolls. But what I'm asking is in terms of, um, you know, smart cities, uh, you know, uh, how can AI be used in terms of routing traffic intelligently based on the data? I mean, uh, the city has cameras everywhere, right? So the, obviously there is data enough to see the traffic pattern, uh, intelligently route or move people around um, like a crowdsourcing platform based does in a certain way, but in a major um, you know, hub uh, like New York, how do you see that uh, uh, playing out? You know, that's such a good question. And I've been in New York for a long time. <laughs> so I, I love that city. But just thinking about, you know, Singapore has been known for transport planning and it uh, includes, and I'll give you the example of uh, Singapore. It has, um, it has transport planning. It uses public data, including fare card data, sensors in over five thousand vehicles, and also real-time bus tracking. And what it does as a result, it uses real-time traffic data to adjust toll rates and manage traffic congestion. So it can redirect things. So if you have a smart traffic management system, it doesn't just, you just don't do tools, tolls, you do smart tolls. 
And the other thing that people are doing is, and I know New York is doing the same thing, which I talked about earlier in Barcelona. I didn't work out with them. But if you have a digital twin, you can actually create an entirely eco-smart city that is maybe even partially vehicle-free. So, for example, uh, you know, in Tenga, in Singapore, it's essentially a forest city. It will have five residential districts with 42,000 houses, but it's basically vehicle-free. So what we're, what we're seeing is that um, artificial intelligence then focuses more on AI-powered light rail, AI-powered trains, and AI-powered electrical taxis. If you look at uh, Transport of London, TFL, I think they're also working to expand traffic sensors using AI. They can identify the drivers, the vehicles, and um, in this way, they're also able to replace manual methods um, for, for this. So I think there are lots of ways to do this. Uh, and it's not all useful, but Singapore and other cities are giving us fundamentally a way to tackle traffic congestion, either by blocking off zones and redirecting traffic, by dynamically increasing and decreasing poles, and also, eventually, I think, by um, managing traffic congestion automatically by rewriting them in the long run. Thank you, Shriram. So maybe uh, next was, uh, yes, uh, Mr. Shai Omar, please go ahead. Hi, uh, thank you so Omar, much. Yeah. yeah. Hello. Hello. Hello, thank you so much, Dr. Aisha. It's very, very inspiring and insightful of your mention of uh, smart cities and a very uh, comprehensive as well. Your mention of uh, Boston Dynamics, uh, uh, Boston Dynamics Robotics, which is uh, Spot the Dog, uh, which uh, brings me to light on the, uh, the presence of uh, uh, AI-powered uh, robots, uh, especially uh, uh, what do you call this, humanoid robots, for example, from Ingenium Arts. Uh, Ingenium Arts is currently developing uh, this robotic mechanism called Amica. And she is both uh, mechatronic as well as running on generative AI. So she's able to uh, to interact and to prompt and then to generate uh, a lot of other AI-generated images and objects. So I was wondering, uh, in how many years from now will that be publicly available in smart cities, considering that we have smart cities? Uh, will we be looking into humanoid robots uh, in the streets uh, along our architecture buildings? Uh, also, one thing that I mentioned also with uh, Sri Ram was mentioning about uh, traffic congestion uh, in uh, in cities. Uh, this brings me to uh, to the to the equation of uh, using uh, unmanned autonomous vehicles uh, or UAV. I know that London is currently uh, working with uh, with the Microsoft uh, UAV, which is called Wave. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Google also had years uh, which is called Waymo. Mm -hmm. uh, these are autonomous vehicles that are unmanned, so there's no there's no driver there. It's just moving around. So I'm just wondering if in the future smart cities will be uh, predominantly using. Uh, UAVs, uh, which would help generate uh, less in the traffic. So those are the two questions that I have in mind. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Amarelli. I First of all, yes, already we have a lot of robots. The difference between generative AI and, and by the way, when I was in Tokyo or I'm here in Singapore, um, you know, I often go to restaurants and even to the swimming club and all the food is served by robots. But the difference is that they have little eyes and they beep. But because of generative AI, you can actually give them the order without having to press buttons. And we'll see the upgraded robots very soon. And you are able, they are able to understand you. So Google DeepMind did this amazing research and created a robot that cannot, that was given a table full of objects. And the old way or the, the traditional way of teaching robots is to preload them with information. But in this case, they asked the robot to pick up something, a tiger, from the tabletop. And it was remarkable that the robot had never heard, it had never been trained on a tiger, so it went to the internet and looked at what a tiger was because it was able to search because of generative AI, and then it came back and picked up the tiger. And we're seeing uh, new robotic companies like React built entirely on generative AI. So I think this is uh, absolutely going to happen, and it's absolutely going to happen as well, that um, we are going to have this 
situation where autonomous vehicles, as I mentioned, they cause less accidents and are not pollutive, are going to be in new districts. Older districts are much more difficult because they're windy roads, they're, they're all of these nooks and corners, and there's a larger chance of accidents. Thank you. Okay, next question. Faisal, please go ahead. Thank you. Hi, Aisha. So, Hi. so my so my question is around polarization in the world between Occidental countries and the third world countries. So, you know, yeah. already the Occidental countries are way ahead of the, the, the technology, e-governance, and all. So, I'm from Nandankana. It's a law. It's a large town in Pakistan where Guru Nanak was born. So, every year we have many foreign visitors who are Sikhs who come mm -hmm. there. Then we have around 250k people who live there. And I see a lot of issues around governance, waste, sanitation, and most importantly, is the unequal distribution of resources and the access to government offices also. The ones who have contacts, they get the common, uh, the, they get the uh, access to government to resources and the common people are kind of ignored. So like, how do we, uh, you know, have some cheaper versions for countries who are already way behind technology. And, you know, okay, private companies are do doing so much. But, you know, when it comes to the government, I think the world needs to think that the polarization needs to, you know, the gap doesn't need to increase with all these countries going with AI and the third world countries are left way behind. So, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if you, you can talk about it when you go to different talk shows, forums on AI, and maybe, you know, highlight this issue. Faisal, that's such a good point. And this is known as the digital divide, right? People say that this is the, the biggest fear, that the owners of tech and AI will get ahead and the rest will be left behind. But I think that the example of digital education, digital health, and digital work is really the key for people to have social mobility. When the government is too poor to help, or sometimes there is corruption, such as in many, many emerging markets, sometimes even in the developed world, then people are unjustly left behind. And it's so unfair that people like you and me have jobs and, and have education, but then there are people in villages in Africa or India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nigeria, Brazil, even America, that don't have access to it. And sometimes the government can't provide good teachers to everyone. And that's why the public-private sector cooperation, which IFC, International Finance Corporation, really encourages in the emerging markets is so important. If you look at Han Migo, Han Migo is a generative AI chatbot built by the Han Academy. It's absolutely free. It's a nonprofit, right? What you do is you can take a course, any course, it's like a video course on science, and then you can ask Han Migo's generative AI assistant to essentially answer you anything. So you may know something really well, and I may not understand the math well. You may not need to ask the question, but I can say to Han Migo, tell me about this linear algebra equation and it will explain it to me. So it will personalize the learning to me so I can reach your level. And also it won't answer questions so it doesn't let you cheat. So Khan Academy especially built one that nudges you into reasoning. So I'm really optimistic, Faisal, that using AI properly, governing it so that you don't, Khan Migo doesn't first teach you and then try to make you spend money and buy Gucci bags and stuff, but it's responsible and ethically governed, which is why regulation is so important, that actually the use of AI in cities will open up our ability to bring everyone away from the wrong side of the digital divide. So I thank you for that question. I think it's very important. Okay, I think we just have a couple of minutes left. Hi, Ali. So the question is about uh, the connection between smart houses and smart cities. Yes. Because the people and the smart cities, they are another very important part of building smart cities. So how do you think uh, is the readiness from the people side and the role of smart houses uh, to building the whole smart cities in, in broader picture? Thank you. 
Uh, sorry, when you mean smart houses, do you mean like the 3D printed houses or do you mean smart houses in terms of houses that have sensors and data in them? Yeah, so IoT based smart houses and, and I'm talking not houses only, it's about people as well because it's people who will decide whether I want to, you know, transition my home towards a traditional to greenhouse to smart house. So that's yes, right. so I'm not talking about 3D houses as now. I, you know, it's very simple. I think no matter, how, unless you're very, very rich, uh, all of us have the same thing. It's all about cost, right? So mm -hmm. the moment you see solar panels, everybody's talking about it. Look, I'm ready too. As long as I can see that I will invest X amount of money. And then after that, what will happen is that uh, I will save money on my electricity bill. Mm -hmm. And if you tell me that, because inflation is crazy right now, uh, I will invest in it. Maybe I will borrow money for it and from the bank and invest in it and then pay it off because even the interest is less than the money I would save. And that is, I think people don't have to be you know, AI experts. The job of companies and the job of governments is to provide better, cheaper, more efficient ways for them to live so that they can amplify their own potential. And I believe that people are ready for it. We don't need to use words like IoT and AI. We will live longer if you have this telehealth conversation, or we will send you the medicine ourselves, or your child will have access to the school. So that's, uh, that would be my recommendation. I think I've worked in villages, I've worked in uh, inner cities, and let me tell you, people are really smart. And, uh, and I commend them. They're just like you and me uh, when it comes to technology decisions. Great. And then do you think that that uh, will impact to achieve the smart cities uh, vision? Uh, because the people are very important stakeholders. So, yes. city, so it will, you know, so it, it, it depends. Uh, on city city country to country because because now it's linked with affordability and how people think so this journey of achieving smart cities can vary in different different part of the world in different time zones yeah no absolutely Ali. absolutely i i think they are very important uh, stakeholders and it's not only their openness but it's also you just you know for example you can't do it without 5G, right? You can't have like sensors and everything else. So now if you look at Bangladesh, it's redoubling its digital transformation efforts. It's enhancing uh, what they already have, the economic opportunities people have by giving 5G through CSPs or communication service providers in Bangladesh. And now you can have smart homes. You can, you can have the infrastructure that's necessary and there are already 300 million smart homes around the world, according to some statistics. So people are ready, they're ready to use it. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. They're very important stakeholders and we need to educate them on how this will benefit them in the long run. Thank you. All right, everyone, it's four o'clock. I know we all have to get back to work, but thank you so much for this wonderful session. My next session will actually be on generative AI and I hope all of you can join. Thank you again for joining and I hope it was interesting. Take care. Bye-bye.